0: In our current series, Shadowlands, uh, we've been looking at key lives of the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. And so far, we've focused in on King Saul, and he's a bit of a tragic figure, as we've discovered. Uh, He's a reluctant king who rises to power quickly, and he quickly falls in love with power rather than with God himself. Saul starts to live for his own name and his own agenda. And up until this point, Saul has been a king like all of the nations. You wouldn't be able to pick him apart from all of the other kings of all of the other nations, except in one area. We see an exception today, and here it is. Saul will not have a biological heir. This is the first point of where he will be unlike the nations. And this is a big deal if you're a king, because as a king, you want to have progeny uh, to to take over your throne. Hence why the Anglican church exists, King Henry VIII, right? And so because, good Anglican joke, don't worry about it. (laughs) But because of Saul's continued unfaithfulness, God has the prophet Samuel sent out to identify and anoint the next king. And it's David, a young shepherd from a rural village. And unlike Saul, David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And yes, David is flawed like the best of us. But for the most part, his kingship will be completely unlike the nations. More so than Saul, David is going to be a shadow of the true king that is to come. In the life of Jesus, uh, David, we begin to see more clearly the life of Jesus. And today's passage, which we just read, uh, is a famous one. Even if you'd never heard it before, you're probably familiar with the metaphor of David and Goliath. Uh, This is, you know, what we use to talk about when the underdog prevails. This is how we understand the story. It's this battle which put an end to any baby being named Goliath again. You know, you're you're, you're familiar with it to a degree. (laughs) But before we get into the the duel between David and Goliath, we need to go to the chapter that precedes it. Chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel on his quest to find David, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, this perspective is crucial to understanding our passage today, because at face value, this passage appears to be about human courage and effort, about the underdog overcoming. But that's really not the heart of it. Well, it's not entirely wrong to ask what giants are we facing, let's be honest, none of us right now are engaged in warfare, let alone facing a nine-foot-nine giant who wants to destroy us. Count yourself hashtag blessed today. (laughs) At face value... This passage, it can inspire us to rise up in faith and face the the challenges we we face in life. It wouldn't be wrong to draw that conclusion from this passage. And I I hope that you would do that. I hope that you would see David's faith and want to go out and, and live life with your radical faith. But the heart of this passage means to get us asking a different set of questions. And there's just one question I want to explore together this morning. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. and We're going to begin in verse 2. And if you don't have a Bible, everything is going to be on the screen. And uh, if, if you want, you can take one of the church Bibles home. It's yours if you don't own one. 1 Samuel 17 verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. So here we are. The Philistines, they are the arch... A nemesis of Israel. They were rivals. Think Pepsi versus Coke. Lakers versus the Celtics. Star Wars versus Star Trek. Microsoft versus Apple. Uh, America versus Russia. Or more importantly, Taylor Swift versus Katy Perry. Uh, bad <laughs> blood. You know, this is what the <laughs> Philistines were to Israel. Now, the great enemy of Israel, the Philistines, they're on the offensive. You know, the two armies, they're separated geographically just by a little valley. But separating the Israelites from the Philistines uh, psychologically is a chasm of fear. They're afraid. The whole camp of the Israelites are gripped by fear because the Philistines, they've always been more technologically advanced than Israel. All throughout the scriptures, we see that the Philistines entered into the Bronze Age before Israel. But they're also more advanced because they have a champion named Goliath. We don't measure things by cubits and a span, so it's hard uh, to see what's so intimidating about Goliath. He was a giant, but not in a fairy tale sense. Anyone who grew up enjoying The Princess and the Bride, or more importantly, WWF before it was WWE, know about Andre the Giant. He was seven foot four. And he was a formidable opponent for the man in black and he could make Hulk Hogan appear small. But the tallest man in recent medical history is Robert Pershing Wadlow. This is a real picture of him. Wadlow was 8 foot 11. So it's not too much of a stretch, Roger quality pun intended, for us to imagine Goliath who is somewhere near 9 foot 9. He was enormous, a full head taller than Wadlow. And so if you try to imagine his height with his arms stretched above his head, wielding his weapon of choice, you can imagine what a terror he might be. The impact he might be upon the psychology of Israel, the fear that he would inspire. Because the average Israelite in this time was a good five foot six. But it wasn't just his size that struck fear into the hearts of Israel. His wardrobe was the ancient equivalent of Iron Man. We read in verses 5 through 7 about his battle gear. He had a durable coat of mail covering him from shoulder to knee. It it weighed roughly 150 pounds. So imagine me. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, he also wore a bronze helmet and fancy uh, bronze leggings worthy of their own mention. And he had a javelin as well as a spear with a spearhead weighing in at 15 pounds. So in addition to all of this, Goliath had a shield carrier. And the Hebrew word for the, the shield, it refers to a shield that was the size of a normal sized man. A full human grown shield. And this little man ran in front of Goliath to protect him. So keep this picture in mind as we read Goliath's taunts in verse 8. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Goliath is suggesting a tactic that we see uh, in the ancient Eastern world, a representative battle. And he's actually saying, in a way, the Philistines are giants compared to little Israel. Your culture is nothing compared to us. So let's have a fight one on one, winner takes all. And give her the stature of Goliath. It's no surprise that we read in verse 11 when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were greatly dismayed and greatly afraid. We read in verse 11 that Goliath's taunts went on for 40 whole days, morning and evening. So not only are the people afraid, their king. Their representative, the one who should go out and fight for them, he's afraid too. And this would be a psychologically defeating experience. You know, after a few days, you might still hope, oh, someone will rise up. Someone will will show up. Someone will fight this battle. Even after two weeks, you might even be able to hold on to the hope like, well, maybe the journey was long. They'll show up. Someone will come and fight this battle. But after 40 days, morning and evening, no one has stepped up to the plate. Not even the king, whose scripture mentions, is very tall by his own right. Seasoned in war, not even the king will step up to the challenge. Forty days of taunting and no one steps up to the plate. It's a sobering reminder that God doesn't always provide quick fixes to our trials. God does not always provide quick fixes to our trials. But after 40 days of taunting, on the 41st day, David enters the battleground. And he's there running errands between his father back in Bethlehem and his brothers who were there at war. And David arrives and we read in verses 22 through 23. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. And behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. So their daily ritual continues. 41st day, Goliath gets up to taunt Israel. The only thing different this time around is that David heard these words. And we continue in verse 26. David said to the men, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Up until this point, God has not been mentioned at all in the passage. The only time that God has been mentioned is in the the mouth of Goliath. Israel has been acting as if God is not alive. They're paralyzed with fear because they think God is irrelevant to the battle, that God couldn't possibly make a difference in this situation. But for David, it's unthinkable to assess a battle or anything else in life apart from the rule of the living God. Because God is not just an idea to David. God is alive. He's the living God. David says, who does this Goliath think he is defying the living God? The Hebrew word there for defy actually connotates shame, heap shame. Goliath is trying to shame the living God of Israel as a nobody, as nothing, as an unworthy opponent who can easily be defeated, and David can't stomach it. He can't fathom it. Who is this Philistine to challenge the living God? Now, we we read about David's brothers overhearing this, especially his eldest brother, hearing the youngest brother smack talk a giant. And he calls out David. He says, you're acting wickedly. You just came up to see uh, the battle. Now you're talking a big talk, but there is no way. And David just isn't even dissuaded. And so David's confidence in God gets the attention of the king. And we read in verse 31 that David repeats to Saul all of the words. And he said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him for you're but a youth, but he has been a man of war from his youth. We're in a battle of appearances. We're in a battle of appearances. Goliath appears invincible. David appears young and naive. Goliath is experienced in war. David appears incapable and weak. But we've already been warned in the book of Samuel, about paying too much attention to outward appearances. Goliath's heart is in defiance against the living God. David's heart is committed to the living God. That's all that matters. But Saul, he doesn't see it this way. He continues, like Israel, to be caught up in appearances. And of course, in this scenario, it's not hard to empathize with Saul. I mean, if a little boy came to you and said he's going to fight A giant, you don't want to send him out to the slaughter. But David won't back down. He says in verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine uh, shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. First, David wants to assuage Saul's fears. I have some credentials, Saul. I have fought a lion and a bear like Roger did in the, the rural country of South Carolina. And, and pretty impressive. But he suggests that Goliath is no more than a savage animal because he's defying the living God. He's reduced himself down to a mere animal before David. And God has shown up in the past and he'll show up again. Look at verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David knows he would be no match against a lion or a bear. He knows how outrageous it sounds to say that he's faced off a lion and a bear. But it was the Lord who delivered him. That's the only reason he could take on that fight. And so, because of how God has shown up in the past, David trusts that yet again, God will deliver him from Goliath. But there's something we don't see immediately in the text. David now speaks the name of God, Yahweh, which is translated as Lord. You know, twice David has said the living God, but now he speaks his name, Yahweh. Yahweh delivered me, and Yahweh will deliver me again. No one else in the story has said God's name. And so now the narrator is stressing that David intimately knows God, that David stands in a right covenantal relationship with God. He knows God personally. David is a man after God's own heart. You see, David doesn't have a hypothetical faith. He believes in the stories he's inherited from Israel, but he also knows God has shown up in his own life. He trusts that Yahweh will continue to deliver. And he prevails upon Saul, and he temporarily emboldens Saul. Saul responds in verse 37, Go, and Yahweh be with you. For a moment, Saul believes in the power of Yahweh. But then Saul attempts to share his armor with David. And it's comical. Because first off, Saul is at least a full head taller than David, much, much taller. And the armor, it won't work for David. It's too clunky. You know, it's like a child trying to wear her mother's dress or a son trying to wear his father's suit. And behind this comical incident, however, is the reality that Saul has always tried to be like the nations in every capacity. If you look closely at the description of his armor, it parallels the description of Goliath's armor. But that won't work for David. David's way of kingship will be unlike the nations. His strength and defense won't be in having the best technology and equipment. David won't be like Saul or Goliath. He takes off the armor. Instead, we read in verse 40, he took in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in hand and he approached the Philistine. You see, David goes out as he is. He's a shepherd with a slingshot and some stones. David doesn't try to be anything more than God made him to be in that moment. See, David knows that God can work with him as he is, not the future version of himself. David knows God has delivered him without armor before that God can deliver him yet again. He doesn't try to be anything more than God made him to be. And it's a beautiful example of how God works. God magnifies his name. He makes his power known throughout the world through our weakness. As St. Paul puts it, God's power is made perfect in weakness. He doesn't need our strength. He just wants our hearts. He's not impressed by what you can do. He just wants your heart. The passage continues, The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The the Hebrew words for that are Justin Bieber. And the (laughs) Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. As Goliath comes out to meet David, it says the Philistine cursed David. And this is the real heart of the battle. Will God be faithful to his promise? Because core to who Israel was, was the promise God made to Abraham, their forefather, our forefather. And what was the promise? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And now Goliath has come forward, not over challenging Israel, but challenging David and saying, I curse you. This is the battle. It's not a battle between David and Goliath. It's a battle around who God is. Is God faithful? Can we trust him to deliver on his promises? We read in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I love this. David essentially says to Goliath, you might be impressive, but I have the name of Yahweh. So bring it. David continues, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This is very liberal. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. But now pay attention to this part, underscored in your Bible. Verse 46 and 47. David's going to do all of this. That the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he'll give you into our hand. You see, this isn't a mere battle to David. And this is why we shouldn't make this passage about the little battles we may face in life. This is about the name of God. The name of, the the God who has a name and the God whose name can be known. David said, Goliath is going to be defeated for two reasons and two reasons alone. First, so that all of the earth In other words, everybody. David says, Boliath is going to be defeated so that everybody can know there's a God in Israel and he's the living God of the universe. That's reason number one. And reason number two, so that Israel, God's people, know that God doesn't save with the sword or spear, but by his power. And now we begin to see what it's like to be a person after God's own heart. You trust who God is. You desire God. You care about God's reputation and not your own. You care about God's glory and not your own. You want God to be made known in the world and not just stake out your own ground. You want to see people follow God with great faith, not trusting in themselves, but trusting in his power. And this is counterintuitive for us. Because so much of life in this world is about making a name for yourself. Maybe you want to be insta-famous. I can't even believe this is a phrase, but I researched it this week. You know, you curate your image. You snap photos. You show us what you're eating and the adventures you're seeking, the deep thoughts you're pontificating. You gain enough followers, and companies will even pay you to promote their products in your photos. But it's all about your name. It's all about building up your image. Or maybe you've gone to the best school, you got the best grades, you apply for the best jobs, you're doing all the best things so that your resume or your CV can be the best and stand out above everyone else. You're building a name for yourself. Or maybe you're in the face of life where you're thinking about your legacy, how to leave your mark on history. So you make large donations with your name attached or you, you try to make an impact on people so your name will be remembered. Again, it's all about your name. And I feel this temptation acutely. I'd say it's probably my greatest temptation in life. Desiring reputation, desiring fame, desiring status, the desire to be known and have people know what my name is. But God continually challenges me in this area. Goliath had a name and it crumbled before the living God. Saul, Goliath, David, Alistair, Michelle, Laura, Bub, Julia, Tom. It doesn't matter what your name is. If you're trying to make a name for yourself, your heart is out of sync with God's heart. You see, this passage invites us to lay down the name you're trying to make for yourself and to live for a greater name, an eternal name, the only name worthy of faith and adoration, the name of God. And that's the first step towards becoming a person after God's own heart. But there's still another step. So let me ask one more question. Is your preferred future one where the entire earth cherishes God's name? Where every single person's knee bows before the living God? You see, this rubs against our cultural sensitivities. We're taught to respect the different beliefs. We're taught to keep our personal beliefs to ourselves. We're told that they're all equal and they're all valid. So listen to me first. We should respect the equal right for everyone to have their own belief and religion. In a pluralistic society, nobody should be treated differently because of their belief or religion. As Christians, I would even say we must work for and pray for the flourishing of every person, even our enemies. So how much more for someone who merely holds different beliefs than we hold? So we must seek the common good of every single person. But this does not mean that we have to accept all religions and beliefs as equally valid. Because they're not. They're not. You see, we immediately feel like, you can't say that. And look, I don't want to deny that common truths can be found in other religions of the world, nor do I want to limit the power of the living God. He's the living God. God can make himself known at any time and at any place through any means he desires. But God has a name. It's Yahweh, and God has a son, Jesus Christ. And when God makes himself known in the world, he, in the surprising ways that he often does it, he leads people to faith in Jesus Christ. We are making an exclusive claim and you cannot escape it in the scriptures. Amen. So despite what pundits and columnists say, it is actually possible to respect people without affirming or accepting their beliefs. And you know how we know this? Because people accept us all the time and they don't actually believe what we believe. And when you sit down with a devout Muslim or Jew or Buddhist, and I hope that you have these sort of conversations, they're not going to pretend like we believe the same things. There's some overlap, of course, but there are significant irreconcilable differences. Coexist bumper stickers are the stupidest thing in the planet. (laughs) It's usually the irreligious, it's usually the irreligious, not the religious, who want to lump all religions into the same pot as equally valid. But again, anyone who takes their own religion seriously won't agree with them. So if you desire the living God's heart, you can't reduce him down to one option among many. If you desire God's heart, you can't say that he's going to be found in any and every religion when he's revealed himself through a specific people, Israel, and through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. If your desire is God's heart, your preferred future is one where every Person knows the name of Jesus Christ, where every knee bows before him and celebrates that he truly is the Lord of the universe. If you desire God's heart, you desire that every single person might be saved and come into a living relationship with this God. We can hold this conviction while also maintaining respect and love for those whom we disagree with and who disagree with us. Having this conviction doesn't mean you have to become a jerk. But we should not capitulate to culture and so diminish the truth of who God is and the claims that we have received through his revelation in scripture. Now, back to the story. You already know how the story ends. One stone, one shot, cut off the head, no big deal, done. End of story. David defeats Goliath. But at this point, we know it's not David who won the battle. Because the battle is the Lord's. Do you see? This passage, it's not about the little struggles or challenges we may face day to day. It's not rising up in faith against those metaphorical giants in your life unless, unless those very things are challenging the name of God. You see, the battles in your life that matter are the battles that attempt to challenge who God is and to make God less than who he is. Those are the battles we're called to rise up in faith and fight. And not even fight, but allow God to show up. This is a passage that asks us, whose name do you live for? Whose power do you trust in? Is God capable? Is he alive? Does he have the power to save? Can you trust him? And David, he shows us what it's like to be a person after God's own heart. And what we have in Scripture is just the highlight reel of David's life. We don't have every moment, but this moment might be his finest hour. And this is not for the reasons you might think. This is not David's finest hour because of what he did or even what he teaches us about God. It's his finest hour because his life, his heart gives us a glimpse of the true king. It's his finest hour because with clarity, we see Jesus Christ. More than David, more than any of us, Jesus was a man after God's own heart. He knows the heart of God. And when he walked on earth, he never deviated from the will of God, from God's heart and desires. And like David, Jesus arrived for the battle at hand and it had everything to do with God's name. In a world of suffering and evil and affliction, does God have compassion for us? Will God forgive our sins? Will God ever make things right in the world? And like David, Jesus went into battle unarmed, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, but God's power is made perfect in weakness. Unarmed, naked, exposed, helpless, having the appearance of defeat, Jesus delivered us from our greatest enemies, the giants of evil, sin, suffering, and death. You see, you don't have to rise up with faith to fight these battles because Jesus has already fought the battle for you. The battle is already won. It's done. You see, David's faith shows us that a faith in God is not a faith in what we can accomplish or do, but a faith in what God can accomplish and do and a faith in what God has accomplished and has done for us. As Jesus says, it's finished. The victory is ours. And so no matter what battles we'll continue to face on this side of eternity, and we will, we'll struggle and suffering will come our way and we'll face moments where we feel pain and temptation, but we know that our light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't accomplish that. Your name can't accomplish that. Only the name of Jesus. You see, the finest hours of your life and my life will not be the moments where we rose to greatness or accomplished impressive things. It will be in the everyday, ordinary moments where you opened yourself up to the living God and his ability to deliver. When you opened yourself up and allow his spirit to shine brilliant, through you. It'll be the moments where you make Christ known to those around you through word, through heart, through action, through any means possible. The moment that you are a clearer image of Jesus, those will be the finest moments of your life. Because it's the name of Jesus and only the name of Jesus that deserves renown and fame and praise. So who are you living for?